If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. New Testament reading and sermon passage from 1 John 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is excuse me, his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see you all. For those of you who are watching online, a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you're participating with us. If you're visiting, um, a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you're here at Cornerstone. We're in this letter called 1 John, and John is fighting a heresy, an an untruth called Gnosticism that comes from the word uh, gnosis or gnosis in the Greek, knowledge. And the error goes like this, if you just know enough about God, if you know the right things, then you're okay with God. But what we're seeing is that just knowing things can lead to words without action, faith without deeds. And so today we come back to this familiar theme of love, and when we think about love, we know we are supposed to love, and we know that there's ways that we want to love, but we wrestle to love. In fact, sometimes we want to actually sit in hatred with someone rather than sitting in love with them. And as we see here in the text, sometimes we even want to murder the person. Now, John says it's not just knowing the facts about God, but it's actually knowing God himself. John's very adamant, and he's saying you need to have a relationship with God. You need to have this fellowship with God. And he says, when you know God, when you experience God in his love, then that love begins to overflow even toward those whom you may hate. 
So our big idea today is this, because you have been loved by God, you are to love others in deed and in truth. In other words, because you're so loved, this gives you power to love even those whom you find yourself hating. And so we'll get at that through five points. Don't be intimidated. Remember, the more points, the faster I go. And so the first point is the command of love. The second point then is what does love look like? The third point is why we just don't love. The third or fourth point then is how have we been loved? And then fifth and final is the overflow of love. Before we go further, would you pray with me? God, we pray because we need you. God, we ask that you would speak through me. One who is sinful and broken, would you make my words to be your words? God, we pray that you would open the ears of those who now listen, that we would not only hear the words and understand them, but that we would actually be empowered to do them by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, blow upon us now in power so that we would receive your word for what it is, the very words of God. God, would you do this now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this first point is the command of love. Love is the oldest and original command. Look at verse 11. That which you've heard from the beginning, love one another. Here he's repeating chapter 2, verse 7 and following of his letter. And it's good to repeat these things because this is the main idea. The main idea is to love. And so what's the old commandment? Here he's referencing uh, the law of Moses. If you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So loving God. But then also, we see in Leviticus 19, verse 18, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so this is an old command. And yet John says it's a new command in that the fullness is found in the teaching and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is the one who came and said, you know what, you've heard it said, you know, hate your enemy and, you know, love your family type of thing. And Jesus says, you know what? If you do that, then you're just like even, you know, the unbeliever. If you're just loving only people who you like, he says you are to actually love even your enemy. And that involves sacrifice. It means laying down your goods. It means laying down your time. It even means laying down your power. You know, that demand to be right. Uh, laying down power means I'm willing to put other people first. And so Jesus expands what it means to be loved, and that's why John says it's like a new commandment. And then look at verses 23 and 24 at the end of our passage today. What's commanded? Faith in Christ and loving others. So again, we see what's commanded is loving God and loving others. So this is the command of love. Our second point then is, is what does this love look like? Look at verses 16 through 18. There we see love is sacrificial actions done in truth and in deed. And so here we see this love balance. The balance of truth, which is the word of God, but then also it's balanced with deed. Now, the moment we start talking about word and deed ministry, um, those of us who are a little bit older, we know that this is something that the church has often wrestled with. So I'm going to give some stereotypes, not meant to offend, but just to demonstrate. 
So historically, you know, the liberal church would be characterized by saying they excel in deeds, but they struggle or are weak in the truth. And so the, you might say the liberal church, it really understands how to care for people, but they don't want to be too rigid or too dogmatic on doctrinal issues, and that can lead to errors in faith. So it might be faith plus works, or just be a good person, and that's how you have salvation. But then you look at the conservative church, again, stereotypes, you might say they excel in truth, but then they are weak in deeds. And so the conservative church might say something like, all you need to do is just call people to conversion. That's what a church does. But then that can lead to error in living out one's faith. You fail to care for the community around you in that way. What John is doing here is he's describing a balance between truth and deed in the church, and he does so in practical terms. Look at verse 17. There he says, if you see someone in need, do not close your heart to them. That's the truth. The truth of God is resonating in your heart. But then he says you need to help them. That is the deed. Now, commentators point out, and we can see this, that this is actually quoting from the Old Testament. So again, the Jewish mind would immediately go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. There, God says to the Israelites, when you have poor in the land, he says, do not harden your heart toward them, nor close your hand to them. Word indeed. Do not close your heart. In other words, you understand that they are your brother and sister. They're made in the image of God. You get the truth of what it means to love. And then the deed, do not shut your hand toward them. It says, open your hand and freely give what is needed. Now, traditionally, when we talk about helping, we think about helping the poor. And so when we talk about helping the poor, our mind goes to things like food pantry and homelessness uh, assistance and helping in that way. And that's actually good. That's actually a very good thing. We're not minimizing that. But the word that John uses here is not poor, but those who are in need. So those who are in need can be poor, but he's actually getting at something way more than just poverty. What he's getting at is what are true needs in any church body. In our church body, we have those who wrestle with being marginalized being put on the outside, if you will. We have those who are widows. We have those who are single parents. We have those who are trying to figure out adoption. We have those who are trying to figure out foster care. We have those who are wrestling with children with special needs, adults with special needs, adults that we're now taking care of. We wrestle with those who are elderly and they're figuring out the very special care that comes along with caring for parents. We have those who are chronically ill, those who are terminally ill. We live in a community where people are very lonely. One of the things that is a main takeaway across academia today as you think about COVID and the response of COVID is everyone's lonely. And it's not just because of being sequestered. It's because people are now this paranoia of, will I get sick from you? And it puts a barrier, and that barrier causes a loneliness. And so we are a community, we are a church that has need. And so when we talk about this, word and deed, we meet the need partially by coming alongside of people in their need, 
in an ultimate sense, always pointing to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all needs. But then also, it's sometimes it's just doing what's asked. How do people need help? And so it's not just the bare minimum of how I can help you. It's verse 16, sacrificial. Whatever it takes to meet the need. Now, sometimes people point out verse 17 and they try to qualify. And there, John uses the word brother. And so, well, as we think about the needs and we think about the needs of the community, we say, well, it's only for those in the church, right? After all, it would seem rather impossible to meet the needs of the world. I think a good definer here is Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. There the Apostle Paul says, As you have opportunity to do good to everyone, do so, especially those who are of the household or the family of faith. And so what he's saying is, first, we care for our own families. That's biblical. And then we care for our church family. That's biblical. But then we even the needs of the world we care for. That's biblical. And what happens then is when the church is caring for the needs of even the world, the gospel spreads. There's a remarkable book that I actually enjoy. It's called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. And he's an academic guy. I don't know if he's a Christian. Um, it's not written from a particularly Christian viewpoint. And so he just really, as an objective historian, documents how the early church or Christianity grew primarily because not just preaching, word, but the early church grew because of deed as well. Hear this. To the cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To the cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn apart by violent ethnic strife, nothing new under the sun, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. Then he goes on to talk about how it was the church that did not flee the cities when things happened, but the church remained in the city or even went into the cities to help, and the church blossomed and grew. And within three centuries, this Roman Empire is now Christianized. It's amazing. So when we see what love is, we need to then ask the question, well, why don't we love? That's our third point. Love is the highest virtue, if you will. It's, you know, the loftiest commandment. And yet we struggle to do it. We all know that there's more that we could possibly do to love. And so we ask the question, well, why don't I? Why don't I love more? Look at verses 12 through 15. It's a hard answer. <laughs> we don't love because we have murderous hearts. I just want to pause there. That needs to rattle us. John is saying we have murderous hearts. And it's not that we kill people physically. It's good that we're not doing that, okay? <laughs> Um, but the murder is still in our hearts, and we should not be surprised. What does our Lord Jesus Christ say on the Sermon on the Mount? Chapter 5, you've heard it said you should not murder, because then you're liable to judgment. I say that everyone who is angry with their brother is liable to judgment. 
there is murder in our hearts. Now, we're tempted to moralize this and say, okay, pastor, you're just saying, all right, we don't always love, we get that, so we'll just be careful with our anger. You're just really telling us, be a little bit more careful to not be angry. John is saying it's far worse than that. He gives the example of Cain, and Cain is an example of how we are born with murderous hearts. Who's Cain and Abel? Two brothers. They're the first siblings after the fall. And what John is doing here is he's helping us see the heart behind the hatred that we experience. Look at verse 12. Here is Cain, and he's referencing Genesis 4, two brothers, Cain and Abel. Again, the first siblings after the fall. And Cain is jealous of his brother Abel, and he's angry with his brother because Abel is more righteous than he is. But he's not only angry at his brother, he's angry at God. He's angry at God because God did not accept his unacceptable offering. And so here is Cain, and Cain is legitimately not measuring up. And rather than having a godly sorrow or turning to God in repentance, he takes things into his own hands, literally, and he invites his brother Abel out into the field, and he kills him. Kills him. Now, it's easy to read verses 12 through 15 and say, you know what, that's someone else. I'm glad I'm not like that. You know, verse 13, yes, the world hates, that's no surprise. But what is John doing here? John is making a comparison to get us to examine our hearts. And he's saying, you do this. You do this. We all do this. What goes on in our heart? It's this. When we do not get what we want, what we then do is we get the one who is getting in our way out of our way. <laughs> Let me put it this way. When someone stands in, what, in the way of what you want, what do you do? You get them out of the way so you can get what you want. John's saying that's the heart of a murderous heart. The Apostle James puts it this way. What causes, and this is from chapter 4, uh, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's your passions. He says, it's the pleasures. It's your desires. They're at war within you. And he says, you do not get your way. And when you do not get your way, what you want, you murder. Now, again, we don't actually kill, which is good, mostly. I mean, some people do, but by and large, we, we don't. But what John is saying is, is, we often feel like killing people. I want to reference what's called the anger ladder. Some of you who are counselor types know what that anger ladder is. And so the anger ladder is like gradations of how anger is expressed. And if you're familiar, um, the first kind of rung, if you will, is being loud with a person. And that's where you get their attention and basically you're demanding that you are heard. You're demanding your own importance. And then the next rung is insult. And so you start to have verbal, um, if you will, assault. We say those, you remember that phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Remember growing up with that? It's not true. It's a lie. Um, <laughs> it's false because words cut you down and they cut down your worth. They destroy your identity they harm your reputation, and so sometimes words 
hurt worse. And then the next rung on this anger ladder is threats. This is where you say, you must put me first or else. And then the next rung is destructive behaviors. This is where you begin to throw things. And then the next destructive behavior is actually harming someone with your physical being. So, um, but interestingly, this is what people point out. The next rung is coldness. Coldness, I wish you were not here. You're not worth my time. You're not worth living. And then the final rung is what the psychologists call the angry smile. And the angry smile is what is a reflection of passive-aggressive behavior. And what people point out is with passive-aggressive behavior, this is where a person knows a person's vulnerability. They know their weakness. They know what upsets a person, and they begin to push the button on that. And they're doing it because they want to make the person pay. This is where they know the insecurity. This is where they know the fear of that person and they play off of it. And what they're saying is, is I'm going to make you suffer before I murder you in my heart. Now, you might be thinking, wow. <laughs> okay, I get like those first rungs, but how is it worse to have this angry smile? You would think that the physical, you know, abuse and the salt would be like the highest form of anger. And what psychologists are saying is, when you have a visible anger, at least you know what you're dealing with. When you have a visible anger, the person often knows that what they're doing is wrong. When there's the visible anger, you call it out. But when there's passive aggression, it's sometimes silent. See, here's a person trying to make a person pay, murder them, while trying to get away with it secretly. And so that is often the highest form of hurt. Are we surprised? (laughs) See, what I'm saying is controversial. I get it. But we need to see a heart behind a murderous heart. If you're in a court case, you try to establish the motive. And what's the motive? God is saying here, it's a love of self. That's what drives your murderous heart. You're not loving God. You're not loving others. Our highest commandment, our chief calling, instead what we do is we internalize it, and I love myself really well. And if you get in the way of me, I try to kill you. Oh, this is hard stuff. We love ourselves well. But if someone's in the way of what I want, it could be a spouse, could be a parent, could be a child, could be a coworker, could be a neighbor, and our heart wants them removed. Are you alarmed by this? We need to be. Because then we begin to ask, well, what do we do? What's our hope? And that's our fourth point. How have we been loved? Look at verses 18 through 19. When we are loved in God's way, and when we love God's way, it demonstrates that we actually belong to God. But then we just saw in verses 12 through 15, we have murderous hearts. So how do we actually do this? What's our hope? Look at verse 20. Whenever our hearts condemn us, what does he say? God is greater than our heart. So let's bring this down. Let's figure out what this means. So when our hearts condemn us, this is the Holy Spirit at work, and the Holy Spirit is convicting us of our own sin and misery, if you will. The sin 
um, sometimes is hidden to us. And when the Holy Spirit comes, it's a good thing to see when we have our own murderous hearts. We're born with it, and so it's good to see it. And the Holy Spirit then shows us our sin and how we need the Lord Jesus to forgive us our sins. Let me put it differently. The Holy Spirit shows that we are rightly condemned, but then the Holy Spirit shows how God overcomes and covers our condemnation. This is the gospel. We'll go back to verse 16. There we see Jesus Christ is the one who laid down his life for us. Let's unpack that. Jesus, we already saw in this series, he is the innocent one. He is guiltless. He is the one that is without sin. Jesus is the one, if you were to look at him and his earthly life, all of his actions are right. He is the one that we could say is perfectly righteous. He, out of anyone in the whole world, is the one who is not condemned. And yet, what does he do? He goes to the cross and he's condemned in our place. The guilt of our murderous heart is put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, God judges our sin justly because Jesus stands in our place. He's condemned in our place. He receives our death sentence. The curse that we deserve, he takes. And so Christ has paid the debt of our sin in full at the cross. You know, the cross is gruesome. When you think about what the cross represents, the cross representing the wrath of God, and the wrath of God is never pretty. It's never beautiful. And here is the wrath of God being, being put fully upon the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our shame, all of our guilt, and the separation that we deserve, Jesus endures. He who forever with the Trinity exists is separated because of our sin. So the cross is gruesome. And yet the cross is beautiful, is it not? For the cross then represents how our guilt is covered. It's paid in full. The condemned sinner is now forgiven, freed, and loved. So look at verse 21. When we believe in law, upon the Lord Jesus, we're no longer condemned. But now we have confidence before God. And our confidence is not because I've tried harder. I've done more. You know, I really got this love thing down. What verse 21 is saying, no, my confidence is in Christ alone because Christ is my righteousness. See, this is the gospel. I can acknowledge my sin. I can repent because I know there is a God who forgives. And so because I have forgiveness, I can focus on the great salvation in Christ even more than my great sin. Look at verse 22. At first, it seems like a prosperity gospel. I'm going to do more to get more. <laughs> but it's actually a very practical illustration of what this confidence in the gospel looks like. And he gives the practicality of an example of prayer. Um, I want to just kind of think this through. When you are angry with someone, you don't talk to them. When you're angry with someone, you don't really seek their will or what's good for them. You don't really even listen to the person. But when you're right with someone, you listen to them, you seek what's good for them, and you actually act on their behalf because you love them. And then he applies this to God. When you are in right relationship with God, you have faith, you have trust, 
you're demonstrating your love through your obedience, then he says you seek his will. You want to honor God through all that you have and all that you are. And so because God loves us in Christ, we're made right in Christ, we want to ask for things according to Christ's will. And so this prayer life demonstrates being loved. So then how do we actually do this? How does it overflow out of us? Our church office is sometimes a silly place, and we joke around, and religious church humor is sometimes funny, sometimes not. But uh, one of the things that we say, we have a saying, uh, guilt is more powerful than grace. And then we say, oh, wait, 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 I got that wrong. It's the other way around. And we joke around like that in the church office because what's the reality? Just kind of think about your family life, uh, parents in particular. How do you motivate your kids? Sometimes you motivate them through what? Guilt. Because if you really want it done quickly, you guilt them and then they get it done. The temptation is to do that in the church. And so that way, sometimes jokingly, we say, you know what? Guilt is more powerful than grace. I mean, no, 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 that's not the way to do it. <laughs> think about how guilt works. In the short term, you do get a person to do what you want them to do because they're shamed into doing it. But it's short term. At some point, they begin to question, what's the use? Or they burn out because of the guilt. In worst case scenario, they begin to despise what's being asked of them and the one who's asking them to do it. But see, grace is what changes a heart. Look at the end of verse 24 the very end of our passage for today. Um, we know that he abides in us because he has given us his spirit. What is the Holy Spirit's role? The Holy Spirit comes and he changes our heart. The Holy Spirit affirms that we're loved. The Holy Spirit says you belong. The Holy Spirit says you are accepted. There's no more condemnation. But then the Holy Spirit gives us power to examine our murderous hearts. See, if we really want to overcome this murderous heart, our impulse is to hurt others who hurt us. When we're insulted, we want to insult back. When we're threatened, we want to threaten in return. When we receive an angry smile, that passive aggressiveness, we want to return that. And what the Holy Spirit says is, you do the same thing. And you are condemned but then the Holy Spirit in the same breath says, Jesus is the one who is condemned in your place. And when you see Jesus condemned in your place, such forgiveness begins to warm your heart. It melts your heart. And so you begin to seek reconciliation. And you want to love those because Christ has loved you. This same Spirit then empowers you to see how you're cold toward those in need. So going to the text, loving in truth and in deed. Let me just give one thing. If you were to say to a person, hey, I want to look at how you spend your money, that is deeply intimidating because if we knew how people spend money, like if you were to look at my budget, how I spend my money, that's intimidating because you might look at me and say, oh, he spends way too much on, you know, like home improvement or entertainment or vacations, or things like that nature. And so when you have people looking at your budget, your heart condemns you. 
because there's this sense of maybe I have not been spending enough on the needs of the community. There is so much need before us. And so here's the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit condemns and says, there is a truth. We do idolize our money. And yet then the Holy Spirit in the same breath says, but Jesus was condemned on your behalf. And if you're loved this much, then you want to love others that same way. And so it's that love, it's that grace that then propels you with your money to be generous, to say, Jesus, as you have given me all things, how can I give all things back? Not only unto the church, but even unto my community. How can I be generous toward those in need? It's not just money, it's time. It's sitting with people in need. It's walking alongside of them. In truth, I love because I have been loved by God. I love in deeds because he laid down his life for me. What's at stake here? It's the reputation of Christ. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, By your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. In John 17, his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, when you live as one, the world knows that you belong to me and that I have been sent by God. So our love brings peace and health to the church body, but there's more. Our love brings glory to God and it is a display of God's love to the whole world. Now, someone said because there's no baptism, you can do an extra point. I'm not going to do that but I am going to take a liberty to have a little bit longer um, conclusion here. I want to put before you, we need this love more than ever. You look at the news, I'm discouraged by what's going on in Ukraine, and I'm discouraged because I see what's going on in the church. So in my uh, regular Bible reading, I was reading through Psalm 55, and in Psalm 55, here is David, and David is being persecuted, and he says this line, but it's from you, my brother. And then he says, look, if it were an enemy that were actually doing this bad stuff to me, I get that because that's what enemies do. But he says, it's you, my brother. He says, the one with whom I have eaten bread and taken sweet fellowship. <laughs> when we look at Ukraine, I just want to put before you, it's hatred of brothers. As you saw and heard in the prayer, um, the prayer intercession. Ukraine and Russia have the same church. They're brothers. And they're fighting. We should not say, man, they're so bad. Think about our own civil war. Why do we have northern and southern denominations to this day? Because that civil war still has lasting effects. But brothers and sisters in Christ... And then another thing that began to strike me, um, you know, they're talking about oligarchy, and I didn't really fully know what that was, and so I looked it up. And um, an oligarchy is basically when the rich business rulers determine what the government is doing. And as soon as you say that, you're like, oh, that makes sense. We see that all over the world. We see that even to a degree in our own country with special interest groups and lobbying. So one of the things that struck me is, when you put oligarch into your, your internet search, the first person who comes up is a guy named Roman uh, Abramovich. He's a Russian guy. He's very famous. 
he's like one of the top ten wealthiest guys in the whole world. He owns Chelsea Football Club. He lives in London. His grandparents are Ukrainian. He is Jewish. For those of you who are in on what's going on in Ukraine, the president is Jewish. There's a lot of Jewish people who live in Ukraine right now. And here you have an oligarch who can actually, with one word, say, Putin, stop, and he doesn't. His own Jewish brothers, his own Ukrainian heritage. Now, it's easy to kind of point people out, but as soon as we point people out, remember, there's three fingers pointing back at me. When we point out people and say, man, you could do that. You could actually fix this whole thing. And when we point at others and say, why aren't you fixing it? I need to be fixing it. So how do we do that? Laying down our lives, money, power, politics for the sake of another person. I don't have a full answer on what we do as a church, but what I know is we need to pray. So I've been praying that the words of Psalm 55 would go into these oligarchs, particularly the Jewish brothers and sisters, and that they would say, man, what are we doing with our own people? There has to be a better way than killing. So would you pray the same way? Jesus laid aside the glory of his heavenly splendor, his infinite wealth. He puts it aside. He humbles himself by becoming a man. He puts aside his infinite power. And to the cross he goes with anguish from the separation from the Heavenly Father. He gives up this infinite relationship. Why? All for us. Because you're so loved by God. Love others in deed and in truth. Let's pray together. God, you say there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free. Lord Jesus, you became sin on our behalf, and in, in you our sin is condemned, and the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled. Spirit, you who raised Christ from the dead now dwell in us. Would you give us grace to love as we have been loved? May we love in truth and in deed. God, as we look at things in our world, it is complicated. It is not simple. It is naive to think that the situation in Russia, Ukraine, is easy to do easy to solve, easy to fix. It is complicated. God, would you give wisdom to the leaders? We pray for them. Give to them godly fear. We pray for those who with one word can stop this, that you would so work in their hearts and do so. God, you are all powerful. Would you use your power even now? So God, we lift up these prayers all to your glory that you would be glorified, that our love would be a demonstration to the world of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.